Aviation has a history of big ideas. Usually, the people behind those ideas are defined more by the progress they spurred than by the minds that dreamed the ideas up. It's easy to think of the Wright brothers as a single conjoined entity, a black and white photograph, and not two unique people with their own hopes, fears, and quirks. Orville, eager and creative, was markedly different than Wilbur, who was deliberate and more analytical. They were successful because of these differences, not in spite of them. Each provided what the other lacked. As the industry continues to expand and welcome more unique minds into the fold, how can we avoid squashing the individuality that makes these thinkers so valuable in the first place and instead encourage their unique points of view? Our guest today is Kaylee Bowers. Kaylee is an F-35 Training Systems Program Manager at Lockheed Martin. Over the past decade, she's been a strong advocate for women in STEM and a believer that the best way to make progress in our field is to listen to the different lived experiences around us. In this conversation with Kaylee, we'll look at how to draw the best from people we work with. Kaylee will expand upon her role at Lockheed and how the projects she's worked on in human factors and ergonomics showed her the value diversity brings to innovation. Then Kaylee will reflect on the influence her parents had on her life and career path. And finally, we'll examine work-life balance, how centuries-old ideals about how we should spend our time are changing, and likely for the better. This is Push to Talk with Bruce Webb, Episode 12, The West-Facing Backyard with Kaylee Bowers. I'd like to welcome Kaylee Bowers to the show. Hi, Bruce. Just tell us generally, Kaylee, broad strokes, Tell us about yourself. Yeah, so a little bit about me. My mom has always been in the aviation industry um, since I was a kid. And so I've always been a little bit around it and just heard her talk about it. So that was kind of where my interest in that started. I also remember writing a letter to my parents when I was maybe eight years old or so that said, when I grow up, I want to be an ass we're not. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that's still a goal of mine. I've applied a couple of times, but I definitely am. I don't think I'm quite there yet to, to be chosen for that. So I've always had an interest in aviation and astronomy. And then when I got out of college, I interviewed with Lockheed Martin and got a really good job there. So I've been there for um, almost 10 years now. And then during that time frame, I also discovered a love of skydiving. So I skydive for fun. Right now I'm taking a break because I bought a house. But (laughs) uh, skydiving is one of my favorite hobbies. And I like to do the indoor body flying. And That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I see those. Is that where there's a huge, it's almost like an inverted... Uh, wind tunnel, and then you jump out over the airflow. Yeah, so I train at iFly. Um, the iFly that I normally train at is down in El Paso, um, but you'll see iFly all over the Metroplex. There's one in Fort Worth and one in Dallas, um, and then there's a lot of tunnels over in Europe as well. Um, so I have a really awesome coach. His name is Philip that I train with in El Paso. That is awesome. Yeah. I might do that. I'm not certain I'm jumping out of an aircraft. My wife has done it. And I can, you know, in my mind's eye, just hear her screaming with glee. Yeah. She wasn't, but all the way down, you know, for the first however many thousand feet she was dropping. Yep. Uh, <laughs> falling, dropping, you know, accelerating towards the earth. Uh, I, I'm not sure I, I could do it if I had to. And I can see that it's exhilarating, mm-hmm. but I, I would have to talk myself into that. So that's fascinating that you do that. That's wonderful. It's so much fun. And I will say in that first, like maybe, you know, my skydiving friends will will get me for getting the number wrong. But that first however many feet, you know, when you first get out of the plane, I was all brave about it. I was excited. And oh my gosh, that moment when you get out, I was like, what the <laughs> heck did I just do? And then once you kind of settle out and you hit the terminal velocity and you're, it feels more like floating, then it was all smiles the rest of the way. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. That is awesome. So you wanted to, you want to be an astronaut. That is I don't think there's any reason to believe you cannot achieve that dream. Yeah. Do you have a speciality that you believe you could bring to NASA or to a space organization that would allow you to be in an astronaut? I mean, what's your skill set that would potentially allow you to achieve your dream? Oh, gosh. I think that when I think about reasons, I'm I, and not that this is a good thing to think about, but when I think about reasons, I may not, you know, be in a place to get there. I would say I'm not an expert in any one thing or any specialty. 
um, I started college in biology with the plan to go into animal sciences and ultimately be a large animal veterinarian. Uh, later on, chose to go a different route in college, but um, that's always something I've been very interested in. I would say now the closest thing that I have to a skill set that I could offer to that would be um, I work a lot with the simulation systems, um, pretty closely with the pilots in my current job, fighter pilots. And for about a year, I was working on human performance technology. So we were looking at kind of the PVI that the pilots, what they're seeing on the displays when they're flying. Um, and probably one of my favorite projects I ever have been part of, um, and I was leading at the time, we were looking at ways we could improve the process for pilots of any gender to be able to urinate in the cockpit. Uh Um, And so in a fighter jet, you can imagine that's a really hard thing to do. Um, And so it was a really interesting project to talk to different pilots. We talked to helicopter pilots, we talked to men, we talked to women fighter pilots in F-35 and F-16 and just all of the different things. And it was really interesting to hear their different stories and what each unique person in each unique aircraft experienced and the challenges they had. Got some really funny stories, got some really scary stories. Um, and ultimately, was I was able to just really kind of like build a relationship with a lot of those people, you know, on the topic of peeing sure (laughs) and it was it was really interesting it was fun to hear more about it and it sort of um uh evolved into when i was talking to one of the women she was actually a helicopter pilot she was telling me about how they were on a panel earlier that day and they were talking about uh being pilots but also having a family and being pregnant while still being in that range of that time period where you could fly and she talked about i think there's a new I, i don't know how new it is but there's this technology that would allow her to pump her breast milk while she was flying. Uh-huh. Um, and so that was really interesting. That was something that we started looking into. And, you know, it's harder for women to urinate in the jet than it is for sure. men. And then it was, okay, and now on top of that, like, it's awesome that women are able to fly, you know, when they're Right, uh, but there's other physiological but, things that they have to cope with. Yes, absolutely. Right? What's well, fascinating. So, first of all, I would say that that skill set, is exactly what a space agency, whether it's NASA or SpaceX or Blue Horizon or, you know, there's a myriad of these organizations now. I think your eclectic background in education is probably a fantastic thing. EVI. Yeah. I don't know. Pilot vehicle interface. Okay. So that's going to be your displays that the pilots are seeing so um and i don't know what i forget what it's called in you know commercial aircraft um but like on the f-35 we've got the touch screen Mm -hmm. and um so it's just all those things it's their altitude where they're at right yeah yeah. it's all those things that they'll see on their screen while they're flying sure yeah we we have multi-function displays and we put all sorts of stuff up so you primary flight display and the nav display and then the vehicle display and yeah there's so but it's so when you talk about that it's interesting I remember I was flying and I landed in Pueblo, Colorado. And I tell you what, I had to pee so bad. <laughs> it was honestly probably borderline dangerous. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and I believe I read a study once, and perhaps you can expand upon this, if, if a, a study about having to pee and how that affects your decision-making process. I mean, you know, I think they likened it to like alcohol and how your cognitive abilities become strained. And I can remember feeling that. I mean, I, I mean, I didn't declare an emergency, but I, I mean, I wanted to. It's, it's interesting. I'm definitely not a physiological um, subject matter expert, but there, I just know from myself, even when I'm in a really long meeting and I, re- I know that I need to use the bathroom, my brain gets stuck on that at right. a certain point. And like this morning, I, I wanted to do that before we started recording. Sure. Um, and so that was that's definitely one of the paths that I started to go down with a lot of the pilots I spoke to. Uh, I started to learn more about, first of all, just the cognitive abilities that you have and how it, that is affected by, you know, something that's distracting, whether it's that or something mm-hmm. else. One thing we talked about, too, was tactical dehydration, where you kind of strategically lower your fluid intake before getting in a jet for a long flight. Now, is that the healthiest thing to do? Definitely not. It's, you want to be able to trust that you can drink as much fluid right. as you need to. It's the opposite. It's probably the worst thing that we can do. Yeah. And 
you know, this may be into the TMI area, but I've mm-hmm. had three back surgeries. And, you know, it was not, it was soon in this conversation with the spine surgeon, you know, we were discussing what I do for a living, blah, 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 blah. And he was commenting on my comment that before we go fly, and I only fly helicopters, and most helicopters, we typically were flying for two hours. That would be a pretty typical flight. Some aircraft I've flown, we can extend out to three hours. And some with ferry tanks, we can go out to four hours, maybe even four and a quarter. Having said that, what we all do, I believe this is common for all pilots, certainly the pilots that I know, Prior to flight, we intentionally dehydrate ourselves. Mm-hmm. We make sure we go pee. Yep. We don't take any fluids in. And during the flight, we don't accept fluids. So interestingly enough, the surgeon was like, well, yeah, that is definitely impacts hydration. Mm-hmm. Not only you know the, the normal things in our bodies, but also your discs in mm-hmm. your spine. And when they're dehydrated, then that puts your spine in greater... It's more susceptible to the vibrations of an aircraft. To the mm. so we dehydrate ourselves. Yeah, horrible. We shouldn't do that. Uh, so yeah, your study into that is remarkable. Yeah, is there a solution now that is being improved, or is there no solution now, or what? What is a solution on board a? F thirty five. Yeah, so they have, um, and I can't think of the name at the moment, but there is a system that they use on the F thirty five specifically that the men have one version of this system and the women have another version of it. There are good things and bad things about that, and and I know when I was exiting that particular position, I think there was a call from the Air Force side to just a call for ideas and information about what do we think we could start looking at to make this easier, make it safer, improve this process. As far as what works for each unique pilot, everybody's a little bit different is one thing I learned. There's a thing that they call the piddle pack where Uh it's a little bag that has some powder in the bottom that congeals. And so a lot of people prefer to use that. Some people really don't like that and they prefer to use this other system. Right now, it's there's a solution that works but there could always be improvement. So when I was exiting, I think that was where they were going next was what are some other things we could start looking at? And I'm not sure where that study is at the moment. Um, I think also at that time, NASA had put something out about their new spacesuits. I think they were also looking for similar information, like design ideas for how we could improve the suit that our astronauts are working in day to day. So I would actually be curious. I've been out of that role for a little while. I'd be curious to see where they've gotten Mm -hmm. on it. Yeah, I think that as a society, we've evolved to being able to speak about these things more openly. You know, I think even 10 years ago or 20, 30 years ago, no one would talk about that. I mean, a physiological, we just, we ignored it. We acted like people don't pee. Yes. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure all humans do this. I'm I'm almost certain. I I don't think your longevity is good if you're you're (laughs) not able to void your kidneys. Right. So (laughs) so you you work at Lockheed. Yes. What's your primary position there? What what do you do on a daily basis? Yeah. So right now I am the program manager um, in our training systems and simulation team. So I am still working with the simulation systems that we build for the F-35 pilots specifically. And I'm in particular a program manager over a system that is helping us with the software builds of those simulation systems. So that's my day-to-day role. I work closely with our, um, we've got teams that work on software development. We've got teams that work on kind of the development of the environment of the simulation. So those are the engineering teams that I work with day to day. Is it simulators like we, our listeners would be familiar with, like full motion simulation or some Mm -hmm. of it tabletop or is it all? Yeah. So we've got um, a full cockpit. Um, I I don't know if replica is the right word, but we've got a, a full cockpit that we use and then a dome that kind of provides the environment around you to Mm -hmm. feel like you're immersed in that environment Mm -hmm. it's not a full motion simulator um but it is it's the goal of it is to provide you know as realistic as possible a simulation for so it has the visuals yeah just no motion correct which i don't know you know i'm certainly not a sim expert like like (laughs) most people that are listening i've spent my fair share of time in simulators level d's level c's uh flight training devices all sorts of things we're all over the board with respect to what works, what's best, what I think that oftentimes in simulation, 
we spend a little too much time looking for perfection. Mm. And oftentimes, I believe that good enough is good enough, and we can derive a lot of useful training from things that some people would criticize as not being good enough. Motion being one of them. Yeah. If you would go fly one of our sims now, you know, that are about 300 meters from where we're sitting, I think you would find whether they're on motion or not, they still give you that feeling of flying. Yeah. I think you can derive a lot of good, useful learning from those. Absolutely. So you started out in biology. Yes. And then later you moved into engineering. Mm -hmm. So what, what type of engineering did you study in school? Yeah, so I went from biology to, um, I switched to business administration, more so for the idea that if I go to a business administration degree, I could then theoretically work in any field. I could go work at a veterinary office, or um, I could go into an industry in aviation, or science, or business, or like finance. So I saw that as an opportunity to get a basic foundation of business administration and then be able to choose where I go from there. So my bachelor's degree was in business administration. And then after I started at Lockheed, one of the beautiful things there is they provide assistance for the postgraduate degrees. So I got my master's degree in systems engineering through Southern Methodist University. So from there, I I went into a couple of different engineering roles at the company and an early career engineering program. The cool thing about that program and I always talk about this person because he absolutely changed the trajectory of my career in a very positive way. His name is Brian Rosenberger. He's an LM fellow at Lockheed. I think he's now a senior LM fellow there. And that's kind of the top tier technical experts in Lockheed Martin. At that time, I was still in a very business oriented role, but I was really interested in electronics and specifically a project he was leading was 3D printed electronics. And I had no engineering background at that time, no electronics background at that time, but he could sense the passion and he believed in me and he took me on um, myself and one other person as partners to do this project. And from there, that gave me a little bit of background and experience with engineering. So I was able to go get that systems engineering master's degree and then take engineering roles at Lockheed Martin. Eventually, I I got into um, an electronic warfare role and I have a, a professional certification in electronic warfare through uh, Georgia Tech Research Institute. Yeah, that's fantastic. So Lockheed, I believe, owns Sikorsky. Yeah. I have a friend, a professional associate. His name is Chris Lowenstein, who is the accident investigator for Sikorsky for many, many years. Okay. And he stepped down from that position. I'll say it's probably been a year ago now. But when he stepped down from that role, they he, he is now a fellow Okay. For Sikorsky. So, you know, Sikorsky, Lockheed clearly understand the value of maintaining those people with these very specific skill sets and keeping them on board. Yes. And so that is wonderful. And the fact that they invested in you. Yes. I do think that companies that succeed today, Airbus being one of them, certainly Lockheed, Sikorsky, mm-hmm. companies that do well today have to invest in their people. So clearly, Lockheed saw that you were of value no matter where you were going to work within Lockheed, and they invested in you. I'm certain they would, the human resources department would say that you have been a great success. <laughs> I hope so. Um, no, it's, I, I'm so grateful for the investment they've made into me, my peers, my mentors, other early career engineers. It's really awesome the opportunities that we have there, both for assistance with that postgraduate education, um, but we also have a high school internship program. We have college internships. There are a lot of early career programs that you can be a part of, a lot of volunteering opportunities, and just that investment over time in growing your skill set as a person. They're very supportive of that, and that's something that has, in fact, kept me there. It's been really interesting and cool to be able to be part of a, you know, a leadership program and an engineering program. And those kind of shaped my career and my experience to where I am today. And without those, you know, maybe I would have looked somewhere else. Um, so I'm really very grateful for those opportunities that I've had. 
And you're an advocate. You advocate for the STEM programs. Yes. Tell us about that. Tell us about what you do for STEM. Yeah. So I've been involved in a few different things. Um, one, there Lockheed is a very big supporter of the Fort Worth Regional Science and Engineering Fair. I've participated in that a few years. Um, this past year, I didn't participate, but there are a lot of folks from the company who support that. And we go and we judge the projects at all different levels from middle school to high school and the different subjects. So I've participated in that a number of times. For a long time, I was the chair of chair of the committee that selected the Fort Worth ISD um, chair for teaching excellence mm-hmm. in secondary STEM. And then eventually it, the name of that award changed to high school STEM. And so that was a really cool experience. I got to sit with other engineering leaders across the community, not just at Lockheed. And we were able to see and evaluate different teachers in the Fort Worth ISD uh, community and how they went about, you know, structuring their classes or structuring their lessons or their experiments. And just meeting every single one of those teachers was just such a great time for me to see, first of all, it's a totally different industry from, you know, working in Lockheed Martin to being a teacher of, you know, high school age young men and women. And there were different subject matters. There was, um, you know, a robotics course and a math course, and there were different things. But to be able to see how somebody takes their engineering and math and technology and science knowledge and experience and then shares that with that younger generation and the way they go about doing that was really insightful to me and I loved learning about each of their different sets of classes and sets of students um, and just their passion coming through about how much they loved to teach their students and learn each each different student's way of you know, seeing the world and what works best for each unique student. I've held a leadership role at Lockheed, and I really took that idea and and that helped to shape how I am as a leader. And even as a program manager now, um, you know, you can still be a leader regardless of if you have a leader title, right? So I've always taken that with me to say, to sit down with every person on my team or every person in the program that I'm leading now and really just understand, you know, what challenges are you facing? What works for you and what doesn't as far as communication or, you know, what help can I give you engineering team Mm -hmm. from myself as the program manager? What can I do for you? And then also understanding what drives each person, just like trying to understand how each unique student learns best. I really enjoy getting to know what drives each person on my team Um, You know, you have some people that they want to get their time in and go home and be with their kids. And then you have some people that they really want to climb that corporate ladder. And neither of those things is wrong. They're just different ways of different things that drive different people. Absolutely. And I think by understanding that, and I really took a lot of this inspiration from those teachers I met, by really focusing on that, you can really build those relationships with the team and help them even more than you could if it was just purely, uh, hey, here's my job as a program manager Here's what I'll do for you. Yeah. I think when you're in education or in training, however you want to define that, back in the day, I think that people were taught or told that you have to treat everybody the same. So you provide information, you know, you provide the training and everyone is going to get the same training because that's the best way to provide training. That's, that's how you're going to learn. But the reality is every person's different. Yes. And I think... I would predict that if you look to the common skill that all of those educators had that you worked with, it was their ability to adapt their training to every individual student's learning style. Absolutely. And yeah, I think that's, again, we're evolving. I think as a society, we're evolving to know everyone doesn't learn in the same way, the same pace, using the same tools. Has that impacted how you work with training systems or solutions at Lockheed and not so much just in your leadership role, which I'm certain you're a fantastic leader. As you're at your desk or in your office, has that concept changed how you build solutions, how you work with your teams? Yeah. So I would say I, I, and I actually just gave a little bit of a talk on this yesterday. Um, When I came into this role, 
you know, my first goal was to understand the lay of the land of the team. We've got software developers, we have um, systems engineers, we have an IT team, we have, you know, the finance team and the proposals and contracts. There's all these different folks that are part of this entire effort to pull this thing together. And while my focus, um, as far as like my technical expertise, I'm not necessarily the one that's training the pilots. I would love to, you know, be more part of that someday just to see what that's really like. So the actual act of training the pilots, I don't have a lot of experience with. But as far as working with my team, yeah, each person is just so different, but so great. Like one one good thing about this program that I'm working right now, the engineering teams are all very cohesive. They communicate very well. We communicate very well. And I'm still sort of new into this role, so I'm still learning. And so I kind of take that approach. And I've done that um, in every new role that I've held and just said, hey, I know that I'm not the expert in the room. One, I want to understand, you know, what you know about this system, what we need to what we need to know collectively about this system, but also what challenges are you facing? Um, what can, you know, like I said before, what can we do as a program management team to support you? Um, so I've definitely taken that mindset very strongly into the work that I do with those teams. And I just start from a place of listening. I start from a place of just trying to understand both the technical aspects of what we're trying to accomplish, but also each individual person and kind of how they work. You know, some people really like to just get on the phone and have a chat. Some people want to have an email. Um, And so just kind of learning those things about each person just helps everybody communicate a little bit better. Inclusion and diversity is a hot topic. And I know Airbus, I believe, I believe that Airbus does a good job with inclusion and diversity, I think we try really hard to use that as a, a mantra as we hire. But more importantly, I think we try very hard to live that theme, to live that in our daily lives. In other words, yeah, some people are more gregarious and outgoing and more verbal. Some people are, to use a term, shy. They're less gregarious, less likely to speak up in a room of other people. You know, they're more contemplative, perhaps. They'll want to write down what they're thinking or or maybe they're, they're, they don't want to just throw out ideas. They'd much rather think through the idea before they propose the idea. So that's all that diversity. It's, it's, it is wonderful if we're wise enough to use that diverse talent pool. Yes. So in your group or the people that you work with on a daily basis, how many of them are women? How many women do you work with? Or what's the... What's the breakdown? Are there a lot of women in your field or not as many? Yeah. So in my current team, uh, in, in our program management office, I will say they've, they're excellent with diversity and inclusion. We've got, um, you know, I can't say the numbers off the top of my head, but of the probably 14-person team, I think there's probably eight women, maybe maybe nine. And then in our engineering team, or engineering teams, um, you know, I wish I had those numbers, but it's it's not something that I notice as you know, there's not enough women sure. here. Um, there have been other times in my career where I've seen that or I've noticed, you know, I'm the only woman at the table. But oftentimes now I look around and I see a lot of other people in the room who who look like me, mm-hmm. if if that's a way to say it. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of women in the room. I see people of, of ranging ages. And so I think our company has done a really good job of that. And one thing that is really important to me is that idea of like diversity of thought. And like you said, there's the people that are very outgoing and outspoken. They'll raise their hand. They'll be the first to say something. And then there are those more contemplative folks. And I think uh, starting from that place of asking questions and trying to understand is the best way to go. Um, if you're really trying to get you know truth and honesty and transparency out of the team, because that's really how we find solutions. And that's how we work through our day-to-day challenges is we can't start from a place where we don't have, you know, mm-hmm. as much of the data as possible mm-hmm. to do the job. Right. But yeah, I've, I would say, and especially in the last few years, I've never, it hasn't been a very, you know, big red flag in the room that like, oh gosh, I'm the only woman in the room. It rarely happens now. So that's something I think Lockheed Martin has done a really good job of. Yeah. I think that it's so important to have 
a different perspective. I think so too. And I was recently having a conversation with a couple folks on my team and, you know, the world is changing and we've recently gone through COVID and um, a lot of things are are being just talked about more openly. Um, and I'm I'm one to be very open about, you know, my perspective, both as a woman or as a, you know, I'm in my 30s, I'm in my early 30s. And so there's a different perspective there than somebody who's just coming out of college or somebody who's really close to retirement. But we were having a conversation and this specific topic was a perspective that myself and a colleague that was also a woman, we were able to provide this perspective that was different from what that person had ever like considered before and no fault of their own. It just was a different perspective that that, that hadn't been something that was in their worldview at the time. And I really appreciated the fact this was a man we were talking to. And he said, you know, you could see on his face, those wheels were turning. And he said, you know, that's a really interesting perspective and one I hadn't thought of, but it's a very good point. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens often. Sure. And, and sometimes being more open about those things will just help us be a stronger team. Absolutely. When I wear a helmet, a flight helmet or my motorcycle helmet, I have to put a like a stocking on my head, a little cap, because I have a shaved head. I shave my head. Yeah. So if I don't do that, my head sticks into the liner of my helmet. Okay. So when I pull my helmet off, the liner comes out. <laughs> so I have to put that on my head to stop the liner from coming out. You know, I don't get, I don't get, you know, my, my hair doesn't present a problem because I have no hair, but I have a different problem. And that is, you know, with my head, my head stubble, if that's a thing, <laughs> sticking like Velcro into my helmet. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of things that if we don't, if we don't have the different perspective, we can't know. You can't know what you don't know. Right. Size, even uh, uh, a friend of mine, his daughter flies Blackhawks in the army and she's tiny. I mean, she is a small person. She's just large enough to be acceptable to fly the aircraft. Yeah. It, it's not too, you know, her size is only a potential impediment because of her ability to reach things, right? Her right. ability to reach flight controls, her ability to reach circuit breakers, blah, 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 blah. So, um, you know, and that's an obvious one, a physical, a physical restraint, constraint, I should say. But yeah, there are so many things that breastfeeding or pumping yeah. milk or... I mean, you know, no one contemplated any of this 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. And going back to that, a couple of things, um, you know, a man is not going to naturally think of what would it be like to pump breast milk in an airplane. Right. Um, he's also not going to naturally think of, not his fault, it's just, you know, we're built different. He's not going to think of what it would take for a woman to use the same receptacle for urine in sure. the middle of a flight when you're strapped in. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not going to think of those challenges that she might face mm-hmm. and vice versa because we have, you know, different parts. During my time in that team also, we were, um, you talked about your, this person who's the only reason that their size is an impediment is because they can't reach certain things. And we did a study to that effect as well. Um, a friend of mine was leading this effort to create a, like a ground-based cockpit. I'm not an expert in human factors, But watching these two colleagues I had and their expertise on everything human factors and watching them work through the angles and how much we would need to be able to move a chair up and down to allow the largest range, you know, from this tall of a person to this, the other end of the spectrum, this person who might be shorter or the different sizes of people or the arm length and reach or how long their legs are or like when they're sitting down, how like that's different. Even if you're the same height standing up, maybe you're a different height sitting down Mm -hmm. and maybe your reach is different. And watching them work through all of those things Mm -hmm. from an engineering perspective was so enlightening to me because first of all, I thought, man, I don't know how you're going to build something that allows the person on on this end of the spectrum and this tall person on this other end of the spectrum to be able to reach the same things. Mm -hmm. So that was really unique to see. It was a very physical example and I guess manifestation of allowing that inclusivity of all the different types of people in between those two spectrums. Right. Um, And there was just so much that went into that. Absolutely. Well, you think back to flying, anyone who's flown a Hughes 300 or a Hughes 500, a 269 or a 369, 
knows that the seats don't move forward and aft or up and down. Mm -hmm. And the door frame actually provides an impediment to vision. I probably have poor posture anyway, but I grew up flying those aircraft. So you have a tendency to hunch over in the cockpit so you can see out of the aircraft laterally because the door frame is right there in your field of view if you don't kind of lean forward. Okay. Um, most Many aircraft back in the day, most helicopters, didn't have adjustable seats. The pedals would move fore and aft typically, but the collective and the cyclic were, they didn't move, nor do they move today in most aircraft. But the seats now, many of our seats, if not all of our seats now, move fore and aft, up and down. So you can accommodate persons of a different size. Again, 40 years ago, that wasn't the case. Yeah. They built an aircraft and said, well, if you fits in it, you can fly it. If you don't fits in it, I guess you don't fly it. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, human factors, ergonomics, you know, instrument panels are interesting. How high you sit in the seat and what you can see over the instrument panel. Yeah. I like to fly low in my seat. So when I get in a ship, I fly with the seat fully down typically. On some aircraft, that reduces my forward visibility because the instrument panel is essentially higher because I moved myself down. Where if I would sit higher, I can see over the instrument panel, but that's not a comfortable position on the flight controls for me. Yeah. When the seat goes up, the flight controls don't go up and down. So again, it's a, I think every pilot has an ergonomic, comfortable position. And when we get into a ship, we try to make the ship conform to what we need. We no longer have to conform to what the ship provides because we have adjustments. It's funny you say that. Um, so if my colleagues were to listen to this, they'll probably get a good giggle out of it. When I'm working at my desk, I tend to lean back in a very relaxed posture and kind of not very, not good posture. I'll say that. When I'm at my desk, I don't have very good posture. I like to kind of lean back, um, be relaxed, kind of be looking up at my screen, which Anybody in ergonomics will tell me that that's probably why my neck hurts. Um, but while we were doing this study and they were figuring out the range of adjustments they needed to have on that seat in the cockpit, my most comfortable position uh, as it related to the flight controls and the things and how I was seeing the screens in front of me, um, I was very laid back. And so th it was so far that um, a woman that I worked with who I absolutely adore, her name is Chris, she is... Uh, amazing how much she knows about human factors and just by the by the angle that you're at without even having to calculate it she pretty much knows within a degree what angle your your Same. body is positioned mm -hmm. at um and so for uh, here henceforth and forevermore that position they they dubbed the kaylee <laughs> um, so uh i i'm proud of it um when i sit at my desk and i'm uh, you know it's not the best posture definitely sometimes doesn't look professional but it's comfortable for me. And if I played video games, that's how I would be sitting as well. That's awesome. <laughs> and I think that shows that the team is a cohesive team that values diversity. If you work in an environment where people aren't teasing one another kind of in a fun way, it's probably not a fun environment. Yeah. And it doesn't mean everything is chuckles all the time, but it does mean that I believe that the team is cohesive and works well together. And to be in a team like that, you have to be vulnerable, right? Yeah. You, you can't be someone who gets upset if they call that poor posture position the Kaylee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So that's fun. Your path to where you are today began with your parents. Again, I know your mother. How would you characterize the influence your mother specifically, but your father as well, has had on the trajectory of your life? My parents, I'll start by saying my parents are just so awesome. One, I'm lucky that my parents are both still together. I know that's something that a lot of people don't have these days. So I'm extremely grateful for that. You know, I think from early on, um, speaking about my mom specifically, so we had, we always had a telescope in the house. She always was interested in science and reading us science things when we were younger, she had that passion and that motivation to pursue her master's degree to further her career. And I actually was just having a conversation with my dad recently that I never would have picked up on as a young child. But when my mom was putting us to bed at night, she would always be reading her books for her master's degree. She was going to night school and she was had a job. 
going to school, working her butt off. And my dad at the time, what I just recently learned, um, his job was very much, he traveled a lot for his job. And together they made an agreement that, hey, one, he didn't want to travel as much because he wanted to be home with the kids. Um, And this is when we were really young. And with that, when he made the decision to be home more, that allowed her to make that decision to uh, pursue that, that graduate degree. And to watch him talk about how proud he is of my mom and what she did during that time, the two of them raising three kids, but then also her having that full-time job and going to school, to see that look in his eyes when he talks about how much he appreciates her and what she's done for her career, uh, it was really meaningful to me and it, it definitely made my eyes water. So from early on, you know, she we always had the telescope in the room. She was She's always been in this aerospace industry. My dad... I played sports growing up and something that they both instilled in me, but definitely my dad as far as sports, because he also grew up playing sports. It was very much that mindset of not so much the not quitting, because sometimes it's healthy when you get to a point where you just know this is not for you. Sometimes leaving that thing is the healthy thing to do and having that self-awareness. But it was it was that idea that if I did make a commitment to a coach and a team, I needed to be there for that coach and that team. And I needed to be there with, you know, a positive attitude and uh, the work ethic to work hard, to be my best, both for myself, but also for my team. Um, And my mom would say the exact same thing. And so that was something that that I've always had in me was just it's not just me. Like, I want to be good because I want to be good. Right. That's that's fun to be good at the sport you're playing or the thing you're doing. But I also have always had that feeling I want to be good for my team and for my coach or now in this case for my leader. And then fast forwarding to uh, where I am in my career, both of my parents have talked about this. And then my mom has been extremely vocal about it, just the way she's always led her team. And actually, not to get too far ahead of myself, this was the way she coached in sports as well. She was my softball coach for a long time. So the two are the same. In softball, she said, you know, whether the person is the best player on the team or maybe not the best player, if they're working hard and they're doing their best, I'm going to put them out there to play. And if somebody is the best person on their team, but maybe they don't have such a good attitude or maybe that day they're having an off day, hey, we'll we'll take them off the field. We'll put this other person on. And it was always a very fair approach to it, regardless of the skill set. But it was very focused on everybody's here. Everybody put in the work. And everybody's going to be part of the team. And then fast forwarding into career discussions, she's always talked about just being a good leader for her team. And I don't want to put words in her mouth. She would say it a lot better than I can. But I think she's really the driving force behind why I'm the type of servant leader that I am today. She is absolutely that way. And I don't know that she's ever used that term in talking to me, but that's how I would describe her leadership style very much a servant leader, works with the team, wants to understand each individual person, how she can better support them, what she can do for them. Um, And hearing her talk about that throughout my teenage years and throughout my time in college, when we would talk about her job, it was always very focused on the team. And she talked a lot about, you know, I don't take credit for what my team did. I give the team credit. And that's something that has always stuck with me and that I always do now is I'm not the person, like I said, I'm not a human factors expert. And right now in training systems, I'm not a software development expert by any stretch of the imagination. So I will not be the person to take the credit for the work the team has done. Maybe I'm the one presenting it in a certain meeting. um, But my mom always really drove that home to me. You know, if you're the type of leader who takes credit for what others did, are you really a leader? And as you said earlier, you know, leadership is something that is not bestowed upon you. It's earned. Mm-hmm. You can be given a title. Titles are bestowed upon people. Leadership or respect is earned. Yeah. Your description of your mother is exactly my perception of your mother, a servant leader. I believe that that is a term that is certainly a 21st century term mm-hmm. that I believe successful people probably through the eons or decades, centuries, have been. I think successful people are servant leaders. We just didn't call them that. Right. And that and your success is evidence 
of your parents. You know, being a good parent is being a good leader. You're leading the family. And, you know, I think if I were to relive my life, I would probably, not probably, I would spend more time at home and less time working in that I believed that was my primary role in my family was to be the primary earner. Mm -hmm. But I'm certain my wife and children would tell you that they would have preferred more time and less income if, if you had to break it down that way. 40 years ago, that just wasn't how the majority of people viewed the world and not how I was raised. I was raised on a farm. So I guess what I'm saying is I do believe our society, our world has become more aware and places more value on time spent than money earned. And I think your generation, you're the same age as my children, are much more mature in their view of life as it pertains to family and uh, human interaction. Yeah, I'm envious or, or proud and or proud of the, your generation. I think you, you, you are more emotionally mature in those respects. So that's wonderful. And, and you're able to use that in your daily life, not only in your work life, but in your, your, your personal life. And I think your generation has a better understanding of work-life balance. You know, my generation, work was always, the, you know, if, if, you, if it was a work, if you had a work event and a bit in a, a social event, a personal event, but the work event was important and the social event, your personal life was important, 90% of the time you chose the work life, the work event. You just did. My children don't behave that way. And I think that's good. Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting path for, I'll say, for from my experience, when I first came into the corporate world, my mindset was, you know, I want to do everything I can to be the best I can be for that job. Since then, I've gone through a couple periods of burnout a couple different times. And I think until I went through burnout, I fully wholeheartedly underestimated the effect of it. And now that I've been through burnout, that's that was really what triggered me. And I'm glad that it triggered me so early. It triggered me to really pay attention to and value that work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't have kids yet. I do have dogs. Um, but even just as a single person, you know, maybe you don't have the kids to go home to. But there are so many things in life that it's just healthy to experience life for everything that it has to offer not just the job. And I think, you know, I saw my mom work so hard her entire life. And with that, she was still at every sports game, every tournament. She still, you know, she came home with energy, positive energy. Like it never affected us in a negative way. But I do remember when I was a teenager seeing how much she put into her job. For one, I respected that so much. But then when I got into the corporate world and I was starting to be in that environment, I did see, you know, I kind of, it harkened back to my mom spending um, so much time working so hard and she is so successful. But then I also came to, um, you know, the conclusion for myself, especially after these periods of burnout, like, man, I would love to, you know, be the absolute best that I can be at my job. But I'm now getting to the point where sometimes I'm okay with sacrificing, you know, having the best PowerPoint chart deck or the the most cohesive set of data versus being able to have that time away mainly because and I always tell my team this too when I was a, when I was a manager and now as a program manager I still tell my team um, you know the the balance is so important and I'm grateful that I had leaders who told me this as well um, if Things are going on in your personal life that are distracting you from work. Well, as a company, we're not getting the best out of you, so we lose out anyways. But from the person perspective, for me, I know that when I'm in a position of burnout or I've got something really straining going on in my personal life, it makes me harder to work with. It makes me not the person I want to be every day. Um, you know, I really want to come to work with a positive energy and and be kind to every person I can because, you know, it's the age old, you don't know what somebody's going through. 
So I know that when I'm not pouring into myself the way that I should be, I'm then not giving people the the me that I want to be and yeah. treating them the way I would want to be right. treated. I think corporations today understand we need well-rounded individuals. To, to be effective in what you do, yeah, you do need to have, um, you need to be a whole person. You know, I, when you were speaking, it made me think back to microeconomic theory and we draw indifference curves and, you know, do you want more, you know, do you want more potato chips or more Coca-Cola? You know, if you have only potato chips and no Coke or whatever, you can make it peanuts and beer, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but there's an, indi- you know, there's a, a balance. And if you don't have that balance, uh, you're not happy. Yeah. And even if you believe that immersing yourself in work and ignoring your personal life is what you want to do, I think your body will tell you otherwise over time. And that's what burnout is. People, you know, you don't realize you're on that treadmill and just killing yourself. You know, when we say you know, a lot of these old adages, you know, you're going to work yourself to death. Mm-hmm. You know, work's killing you. Well, even if it's not physically killing you, intellectually, emotionally, it may be. Yeah. So yeah, a company, companies know, I believe that's why, that's why we have vacation. That's why we have holidays. That's why, you know, we don't expect people to work 60 hours a week. You may work 60 hours a week on occasion, but you can't do that all the time. Right. It, it, it just, you will burn out mm-hmm. and then everyone loses. Yes. Again, a very mature way to look at your life and yeah, you, you need to maintain a, a, a good work-life balance. As you sit here today, where do you, what, what, te- what steps are you taking to try to place yourself in better stead to become an astronaut? Because I think you absolutely <laughs> can achieve that goal. I really do. I, Thank you. I, what are you doing to try to advance that, if anything, right now? Um, you know, the last time I applied, I, uh, during the application process, I had also just signed up to do scuba diving, which I had never done before, but I know that's a, a way that they train astronauts. And so I've since gotten my scuba certification. Um, I, you know, my, I, I see my experience with skydiving as a beneficial thing to, uh, you know, pursuing something like being an astronaut. Aside from that, uh, you know, at the moment I've, not been as focused on fitness as I have been in the past. And so that's one of my goals is before I ever think about applying to something like that again, I am working on getting in shape, both for the body flight work that I'm doing with the indoor skydiving. Um, You have to be in shape to do that well. And so that's something I'm always trying to improve uh, my physical fitness. But I think the biggest thing I would say, and it kind of goes back to our discussion about kind of work-life balance and burnout Three or four years ago, the first time that I applied, I was emotionally a very different person. I have grown so much in the last three or four years, um, you know, and part of that is COVID. And part of it is just having different experiences in my work life and in my personal life, really learning a lot more about myself and things that I've been through. I'm so much a different person emotionally now than I was. I think I'm much better fit mentally to be in a situation where maybe you're in the, uh, you know, the International Space Station with a group of people, a very small space for an extended period of time. I know that back then, I, looking back now with hindsight being 2020, I wasn't equipped then. Mm -hmm. I think I am now. And that's something that is just, and, you know, it ebbs and flows day to day. But doing that work of just um, kind of self-healing through some of the experiences I've had, but also just self-growth. I've really focused on that. You know, looking back, I see parts of my life where um, I look and I see like, man, I wish I had said something or done something differently, or I wish I knew what I know now then so I could have been better in that situation. Um, And I think now, just on a daily basis, I'm much more in tune with my headspace, my emotional state, those around me. Um, I'm very empathetic to those around me now. And I think I always was, but I don't think that I was as mature then as I am now. And especially I would say having gone through leadership experiences and particularly meeting so many different people through that position I held as a, as a leader and as a manager. But prior to that, I didn't have kind of the for lack of a better word, the reason to like fully understand a person and where they're coming from. And then as a manager, I really had that motivation to do that. 
And that was the first time that I really saw just how different every single person can be. And where, you know, when I was younger, I was coming from kind of only my worldview. I think now I have seen so many different worldviews that I have a much better understanding of people. Um, And I know this is, you know, not so much on the technical and the scientific side of being an astronaut, but I know that's a that's a big thing is and it's when I did first apply, I wondered, you know, would I really be able to be in, you know, in a confined space for a long time? And I think now, you know, I'm not perfect. I have a, everybody has a lot more growing to do. I absolutely have a lot more growing to do, but I think I'm a lot more well-equipped now and a lot more introspective into myself and how I can be better on a day-to-day basis that I would be able to do something like that. That introspective process is something that we learn through experience and age and maturity. Yes. And, you know, I... When you when you were first began down that path, I immediately thought of Michael Jordan, you know, probably, arguably the best basketball player ever. Mm-hmm. There are people on the listening will say, no, no, it was, you know, whoever. But I think we could all agree he's one of the better basketball players that have ever lived, but he didn't make his high school varsity team. Yeah. And, you know, and, and maybe he wasn't good enough at the time. And maybe that experienced... That experience provided him the tenacity or the motivation or, you know, encouraged him in other ways to work on his skill set. And maybe and maybe he had the skill set, but as you mentioned earlier with respect to softball, you know, you may be the best physical player. You may have the best physical skills. You may be the best better, the best fielder, the best whatever. But if you're not the best teammate, yeah, then you may not be good for the team. And I think there are a lot of coaches would say that if you have a team with one superstar and everyone else is average or maybe even mediocre, you don't have a good team. Um, again, this will be a little controversial, but you know, if you go back to the uh, college basketball, Indiana University won the college basketball championships in 1976, and they were undefeated. They, were the, they have been the only undefeated collegiate champions, the last undefeated collegiate champions. But what is lost in that is that in 1975, they only lost one game, and that was the finals. So in a two-year period, Indiana basketball lost one game. Hmm. And there are a few people on the, sh- the, on the listening now will know who the players were, but most people can't name but more than one player on that team, and it's because they were a team. Yeah. They weren't a superstar and a... So I would predict that when NASA or anybody is looking to put together a group of individuals, astronauts, they're not looking necessarily for persons that have the best of anything, but that are mature emotionally, mm-hmm. you know, mentally, physically, and able to be introspective, able to look within. So it's part of the reason I say I don't have any doubt you will I really think you stand a very good chance. Thank you. And never give up on that dream. Never. I think it's fantastic that, you know, you're in a position now in life where kind of the world, what you choose to do now for you will be what you choose to do. How wonderful is that? I mean, I I will say in this country 40 years ago, that wasn't the case, certainly not for a woman, but now you get to choose. No, I love that you just said that because, you know, I I think I always knew I wanted to, you know, aside from wanting to be a large animal vet, the next thing for me was I always knew I wanted to be in the aviation industry. And obviously, since I was a child, I've always wanted to be an astronaut. Now I know how to say the word appropriately. <laughs> um, yeah, I think when I came out of college and I applied at Lockheed Martin, I was so motivated and I knew I wanted to do that. And I was so grateful when I got the job. And it's not that I didn't choose the job. I did. But I'm with you on the on the concept that now, you know, I've grown. I've matured a lot. I'm in my early 30s now. And you're right. I have so much more self-awareness on what's important to me in life that my next step will absolutely be something that I fully choose. And it'll be, you know, an informed decision. It'll be something that I know within myself and all of the experiences I've had in life this is what I want to do. And my goal would be, um, you know, I want to, I want my next step to be something that I love doing. And I think life is just too short, 
to um, be in a situation where you're not at least finding some amount of joy in every day. And so my goal, my biggest goal would be that my next step in my career and in my life is something that I absolutely want to do, that I'll love doing, that I'll enjoy every day doing. Um, And, you know, a a speech that I've always kind of gone back to in times where I've been really struggling with something, um, you know, in my career or in my personal life, it was the... uh, or the um, commencement address that Steve Jobs gave at Stanford. Um, It's a YouTube video I go back to often. And he talked about, you know, if you're waking up and on and more often than not, your your answer to yourself in the mirror every morning, if you ask yourself the question, do I want to do what I'm going to be doing today? And if your answer to that question is often is more often no than it is yes, it's time to change something. And I really go back to that a lot because I think there are so many things in life that that there are still to explore that I've I think I've sort of kept myself in a box up to this point. And I'm starting to realize now those things I want to do, like um, you know, in order to strengthen my uh, opportunity to potentially be an astronaut one day, I want to go get my private pilot license. And up to this point, I've never been able to afford it. And now I think I could if I budget appropriately. Um, so that's a, another step that I want to take and that I'll choose to take. But then, you know, with COVID and everything that happened with that, I think collectively within humanity, we all had a, a much um, a much broader perspective and our aperture was opened to all the different ways we can go through this life. And we talked a little bit before we started this podcast today. Um, there are so many different ways you can pursue a career path. And like you said, you know, 40 years ago, it was go to college, get the degree, get the corporate job. Um, now, there are people making a career out of TikTok and the advice they can provide to others based on the experiences they've had. Or there are people that are um, they're making a career out of the passion they have for uh, woodworking or building a a table, a resin table. That's something I want to try as a hobby someday. That does look cool. It's so awesome. Um, But I think the world, like you said, the world is changing. And I think all of our apertures are being open to the possibilities, the endless possibilities that are in front of us. And all that to say, I really appreciate that you said, you know, the next step, it it will absolutely be something that I consciously choose. Mm -hmm. And my what drives me personally is the ability to have something I do and that I can add value to that is productive and I can help in some way. Um, but then also to enjoy the life that I have. Mm-hmm. And I'm really grateful for the support system that I've had around me. And, you know, that starts with my parents. And, um, you know, without them, I wouldn't have had the experiences over the last five years that allowed me to save money and be able to buy the house that I have now and I have an amazing sunset view every night and some would argue you don't want a west facing backyard because then your AC bill is going to go up but after being in an office all day I value that sunset right and I value because the experience is more valuable than the cost you know so the people that say you don't want a west facing home or that's people from my generation (laughs) because we we predicated most of our decisions on monetary things so the reality is, yeah, it's wonderful that you have what you want. Yes. And and the experience and the joy that brings you is infinitely more valuable than a few dollars. I mean, think how arbitrary money is to begin with. When I started in aviation, I really started when I was 15 years old. I took a, a class, Aviation Aerospace. Um, Gary Anderson was the instructor. I took my private pilot written. Anyway, then as a junior and senior in high school, I went to A&P school, and then I started flying right out right upon graduation, and I've been flying ever since. And I love, I absolutely have, I've had a life in aviation I don't deserve. I really have. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had a tremendous career, but I didn't, I, 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 did, I guess I stumbled into aviation. I always wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be a pilot since I was old enough to know what a pilot was. <laughs> And I was able to make that happen. 
yeah. but not through emotional maturity or it was almost dumb luck. I guess I'm, it's lucky that my passion as a five-year-old <laughs> was still a good fit for my personality as a 50-year-old. But having said that, we all change through life just as you've changed over the past few years since you first applied at NASA. But we all do that if we're introspective enough to look within ourselves and understand what truly does make us happy. Yeah. I remember when I stepped down as chief pilot here, people were like, why are you doing that? You know, that's the pinnacle of your career. Why would you do that? And, and honestly, the short answer is that I wanted to change the focus of my life because I had changed. Yeah. I, I still love to fly, but I will tell you that what I do today primarily is this, podcasting, you know, speaking. I speak. I, I do a lot of in-person presentations and we make videos, safety videos. This is where I should be now. This is what makes me happy. So meeting people like you, telling your story, putting your spin on your life in aviation, that's what I love now. Yeah. That's what I love now. So I think we've reached our clearance limit. I so thank you for sharing your story. I, I am certain many listeners are going to hear you and be motivated to look within themselves, be introspective, find what brings them joy, and pursue that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was it was really great to talk to you and to learn more about your experience and your life. And then also just within this time that we've been talking, learning more about myself too, and what that next step might be and what brings me joy now versus the me right. 10 years ago. Right. That's what's wonderful about life. Yeah. And from this day forward, we will always be part of one another's life. Yes, absolutely. We cannot erase one from the other. So until next time, resume own navigation. The information provided during this podcast, Push to Talk with Bruce Webb, is made available for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed do not necessarily represent those of Airbus Helicopters, Inc. or its affiliates.